Hey there, it's Zachary Thatcher recording an essay from Thatcher Report, which I'm writing on medium.com slash Thatcher hyphen report. You can follow it there or just follow me on social media to keep up. This latest essay is called Scarlet, written in mid-July 2020 from Charlotte, Vermont. Part one, Stanford. It was early summer when I walked across the stage at the University of California, Santa Cruz, to accept my bachelor's degree. Nine days later, I packed up my blue manual Honda Civic and rode up the coast along Highway 1, then east over the Santa Cruz Mountains, through Kenkizi's La Honda, until I descended into the Santa Clara Valley. I was moving to Stanford, a university so expansive it has its own zip code. I crept the Civic in third gear through the campus entrance, south down a boulevard lined with palm trees like from a movie of having made it in California, then curved through campus to 622 Cabrillo Avenue. I was in awe, and apparently at home. I unpacked my bags in a former maid's quarters in a rambling, shag-carpeted, six-bedroom arts and crafts house. It was a quick walk to Fraternity Row in the bookstore, but as a professor's house, it was secret away from campus life. Most students would never know it was there. I had moved to the university's an artfully named faculty ghetto. I would spend my graduate summer living with a professor emeritus of hematology, Dr. Krieger and his wife, Mrs. Krieger. I would never call them Bill and Nancy, while I attempted a master's degree in communication with a hefty scholarship. It was a house last furnished when they had raised four children in the 1960s and 70s. I rented a room just off the kitchen below the Kriegers and two medical school students and an adjunct professor of intellectual history whom I had known from UC Santa Cruz. It was a boarding house, like out of a mid-century novel, you pick the era. I'm sure the retired couple enjoyed their rental income, but now, looking back, as I see my own parents' age, perhaps what the Kriegers valued most was the company and the purpose it brings. At 6.30 p.m. every night, Mrs. Krieger would ring a bell for dinner. Then the students and instructor would assume our places at the table, always at the same settings, then she and her husband would wheel in two glass-top carts laden with food that soon meant its way to the huge living room table, the board in this room and board, with enough space for all of us. I don't ever remember anyone being late or the Kriegers ever once accepting help. The Hamisha old-world living arrangement fit the neighborhood, which was like living in a small-town pre-war California. Kids pedaled bikes along dusty streets that were smeared with the buttercup glow of sunsets. There was no traffic. There were no stoplights. There were no strip malls. It was a village bordered by rolling meadows on one side and students on the other. It was Jane Jacobs with a suntan. And it was all mine for 12 months of graduate school. I studied, fell in love with a classmate, a beautiful woman from Northern Ireland whom I still think of as the star of County Down, lifted at the Treasurer Gym, and that's about it. We rarely left campus since Stanford's workload could have been measured in tonnage. Each night around the Krieger table, after a day spent reading and studying and essaying and test-taking, we talked about the news and medicine and language and movies. Since I was the youngest scholar at 22 years old, whenever we debated a word's meaning, I would be the one to dash to a bookcase to pull out the right volume of the Oxford English Dictionary and read the text aloud. They kept all 20 volumes of the OED in the dining room, where they were needed most. My education in the classroom was as concentrated and dense as a collapsed star. I enjoyed the work. It was laborious and demanding, and I couldn't falter or my scholarship would disappear, so I marched like a good soldier under the full weight of coursework. Naturally, my gifted girlfriend didn't seem to notice as she skipped through assignments like child's play. 
But for me, at least, it was only at the nightly dining room where the gravity of grad school went weightless. The Kriegers presided over a symposium of medicine, history, journalism, and film, intermixes stories from medical school in the 1950s, and please pass the avocados. There were no tests or examinations or grades. We filled our glasses from decanters of white and red wine from northern vineyards. We ate salad from the garden, and we participated and created a kind of sunset-dappled intellectualism that Dr. Krieger would bring to an end each night when he pushed back from his chair, took out a box of Romeo and Julieta cigars, lit one, and then eased back into his throne for the night's last act. Second only to my relationship to a remarkable woman, dinners at the Kriegers were what I loved most about Stanford, which is a university, if you're lucky enough to find the right people, that will instruct you as much in life as it will in erudition. Part 2. Charlotte Last night I sat in a kitchen with one of my oldest friends. We chatted in the first floor of a Vermont farmhouse he and his Brooklyn-born wife shockingly, surprisingly, bought this spring in the year of our Lord Corona. Have they shared a lifelong passion for Vermont? Have they ever even been to Vermont? All good questions, yet also unimportant. They are here now. Quid era demonstratum. Kudos to my Stanford girlfriend who had graduated Oxford before matriculating to Stanford for teaching me that Latin. That year, the OED was only one source of my affection for all things brilliant and British. As a friend observed in a recent phone call, I've been jumping to the lily pads of most enduring friend to most enduring friend since leaving Manhattan in March. First to Andrew, whom I met at age four, for three and a half months at his Massachusetts farm, and now, as of two weeks ago, to Jesse, who I met at age five, at his new-to-him 1800s farmhouse. His family abdicated New York City for a rural life an hour's drive to Canada. Their tiny hamlet reaches to the eastern shores of Lake Champlain and lies just close enough to Burlington for groceries, but also far enough that you may opt for leftovers. Jesse, tall, bespectacled at night, with close-cropped hair my same ashy color, mastered another game of dishwasher Tetris while I kept him company in the kitchen. We had finished dinner with him, his wife, their two little girls, his father, his father's partner, his sister, and me. It was a family verging on a village. Our nightly arrangement around the dining table rang a pleasant chime from childhood when Jesse and I were the age of his oldest girl. His parents, then slightly younger than we are now, would nourish us at their table in Newton in the late 1970s. The rule was that you could ask any biology question you wanted to his physician father, mostly about where babies came from, and his mother, who is sadly and impossibly gone for over 10 years now, who is remembered at every meal and in every cadence, she never seemed to mind us blowing bubbles in our milk. Now, nearly a half century later, I'm still a witness to the same family at the table. We extol the delicious food they've prepared. Our talk forms eddies and pools as we marvel over their girls who are full of dramatic stories and wry smiles and entreaties for treats. We murmur about the brilliance of Hamilton, the musical, and sometimes the man. The discourse churns a little faster when we get to politics, but sooner than you'd think, the discussion glides into nuance and insights and acceptance, and eventually, to good night. Jesse worked a lathered sponge over pots and serving trays and frying pans and strainers and casseroles and more. He filled the dishwasher with cereal bowls, adult-sized plates, kids' plasticware, cutlery, serving utensils, spatulas, vegetable peelers, and the thousands of other items that go into his family's dinner. I just drank wine and chatted. He didn't seem to mind my repose. He likes being captain of his kitchen. 
in part because he navigates it so well, and in part, or at least I hope, since he knows I will be the one who unloads the dishwasher first thing in the morning as I wake before the family and fumble around for coffee. It was around 9 p.m. His wife and sister worked upstairs to wash in pajama and read and rest the girls. The older parents had retired. Window sashes stayed open to the street. Screen doors filtered out mosquitoes and moths. We were open to a Vermont world that was as quiet as a leaf. By now, the sun had curved beyond the Adirondack Mountains, turning them the color of wet slate, yet with crimson cusps. We were close to New York. The state line is about three miles from the front porch, but we were a proverbial million miles away from the city, capital T, capital C, where Jesse and I have, had, both lived for over 20 years. There is only one shop in this town. It closes each day at three. There are farm stands and grazing pasture and more pasture. A family down the road sells bouquets in their front yard for $5 a piece. The subways and sidewalks and intersections and restaurants and traffic and the just multimedia dadaist collage of everyday urbanity, the elevators and escalators and sirens and doorways and buildings that tell their stories in double, sometimes triple digits, all that makes up New York City was not missed by either one of us. It wasn't despised either. It was just kind of irrelevant compared to the beauty of Vermont. Jesse placed the large dinner plates at the back of the dishwasher's bottom shelf. He lined up the girls' trays and the garlic press and the two serving tongs and untold spatulas and acres of glassware and cups and water bottles into perfect repeated rows like a Christopher Burden installation. He hung a red rag limp with dishwasher by the white stove. We finished whatever we had been discussing and bid each other good night. He ascended to the second floor. I walked out the kitchen and into the mudroom. I crossed the threshold of the in-law apartment at the back of the house and walked barefoot across the milk-colored carpet. It suddenly felt familiar. A bedroom off a kitchen. Dinners at a long table with talk of news and art and medicine and memories. Wrestling with topics that never need besting because we can wait to struggle with them at tomorrow's banquet. And besides, it's a scrimmage among friends, not a battle royale. I was back at the old faculty neighborhood. It was the Krieger's house on Cabrillo Avenue a quarter century ago. Both pedagogic grandparents are now achingly, respectfully gone. The 94305 zip code lies 3,000 miles to the west. But back then out there, it was so immediately in mind that it felt physically at hand as if you could grasp time by its handles. Of course you can't, so you just pause halfway across the room, savor for a moment, and then go to bed. It's a cliche that time's telling makes couplets. That evening as I turned on the lamp in my borrowed bedroom and switched on the window AC, I thought of a university whose color is cardinal, which might as well be scarlet, which is also a woman's name that imperfectly rhymes with where I will sleep tonight in Charlotte. Technically, the residents here call it that, after King George III's wife. But you don't care about all that. You'll accept the rhythm, scarlet, Charlotte. So let's just say QED. Almost. Thank you for listening to another essay. This one was called Scarlet by me, Zachary Thatcher. If you like it, you can follow along at medium.com slash Thatcher hyphen report, or just follow me on social media. Thanks and take care.